Hey, my name is Kojo K. Answer, and you are listening to Everything with me, K. Answer, a podcast where I get to talk to a bunch of people from varying backgrounds and professions about things that I really know nothing about. Uh, in this episode, we've got the one and only Dr. Ralph Steinhauser from ANU, professor there, who specializes in behavioral economics. So I'm sure you can put the two and two together, behavioral, psychology, and economics, money. The whole point with these as well is that I get something, I guess, foundational from these conversations and something that I can put into action. And so at the end of each podcast, each guest uh, gives me something to work on over the next few months, and then they check back in with me and see if I was able to actually stick to it or not. So yeah, have a listen, join in, and hope you enjoy the conversation and get as much out of it as I did. Do you want to give, uh, so I've read up, done my little bit of research, but I'd, I'd like to get everything to a point where I understand to the best of my ability. So I've, I've tried to do some research, but there's still a lot of gaps. Do you want to just, first off, just let us know kind of what you do and what consists of your day-to-day? Yeah. So I'm a... Uh, senior fellow or senior research fellow. Um, I'm lecturing in economics, uh, in particular at the ANU, in particular uh, behavioral economics, uh, environmental economics, and I've done other courses at the University of Hamburg, but those are the ones I'm currently uh, engaged with here at ANU. Now, uh, today the topic is mainly uh, psychology and economics, or as it's typically referred to, behavioral economics. Mm. Uh, which is what you, I think, were re- referred to a minute ago when you yeah. said you had looked into a bit. And uh, that is basically a discipline, a field within economics, um, where we take a lot of inspiration from psychology. That's why uh, one um, more appreciative term for it is psychology and economics, mm-hmm. um, making clear that uh, we sort of... Uh, have a lot of inspiration in this field originally and still coming through other fields, uh, brain science, uh, psychology, and so forth, who inform our sort of modeling and uh, sort of theory resulting from these and also our experiments and our studies that we run ourselves. So it's very, it's more interdisciplinary than other areas within economics. Mm. And this field is not is one of the younger fields within economics. I mean, we've had a few Nobel laureates in it by now, which is maybe surprising given how young it is. But uh, it is it was uh, very popular, very um, um, up and coming uh, for the longest time. So maybe that explains it. But as I mean, the earliest seminal papers in this area are from the 70s, and often there are psychologists who turned into sort of more formal approaches and work together with economists and so forth. Um, but as a, as a, an actual field within economics was sort of more in the in the 90s and the f- first American, you know, universities like Berkeley. Uh, it's I think it's a very rewarding subject within subject within economics. The origin is essentially um, for, for someone who has heard about economics, they know there's this homo economicus, uh, this sort of stylized person who is fully rational, selfish, uses uh, probability theory and statistics perfectly well to analyze uh, the possible outcomes of uh, any decisions and therefore, you know, uh, makes very rational decisions in the end. 
And the origin of this field is the theories and axioms and so forth underlying this type of stylized homo economicus person work well in some situations but not in others and the question is do you make it more complicated the theory is harder to deal with uh, it's harder to work with but it reflects reality better and as it became more and more apparent in the 70s and 80s uh, through different experiments people ran that the current theories were sometimes really off We're not always selfish. We're yeah. not always rational. We don't have all our preferences at hand and therefore are not susceptible to influences uh, at the time when we're making decisions if this is worth it, if we want to purchase this or if we don't want to purchase this. Yeah. Do you have, just quickly, do you have any examples of the kind of experiments that were kind of being run or are being run now? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So some of the really classics in... Uh, in economics is, for example, the endowment experiments that... Kahneman, uh, uh, Knetsch, and uh, Tversky ran in the um, early, late 80s, early 90s. And there they have done a very simple thing. They went into a room with, uh, full of students. They gave randomly every second person a mug, you know, like a drinking mug, um, and then elicited... Uh, so ask them what the valuation for the mug is, the ones with a mug in front of them, how much they were willing to give the mug up, how much they needed to be compensated in order to give the mug back, and the ones who didn't have a mug in front of them, how much they would be willing to pay for a mug. And since it's a random allocation, we don't expect any difference uh, between those two groups because they didn't choose to have a mug in front of them. It was mm. just really random. So obviously some people in this large classroom would have have a higher valuation for mugs because they're using them more, because they appreciate the color more, and others would have had a really low valuation for those because they're not going to use it and they know mm. that, and they're going to be happily trading it away. Um, so the randomization helps you to not have to worry about this, essential part of any experimental study. And uh, if you do find a significant difference when asking them about their valuations, those two groups, then there ought to be some other reason. And uh, they established this as being uh, the endowment effect. So the idea is that when you have that muck in front of you and you know it's yours, mm. then you think of it as giving up. And giving up seems something that belongs to you, that is endowed to you, uh, seems to cause a very different uh, sort of emotional response. Like you feel like you're losing more utility, you feel like you're giving more up in terms of making it equivalent to a money amount. Mm. When you're the one who doesn't have a mug in front of them and you think about buying those, you're not thinking about giving up the mug, you think about gaining the mug and how yeah. much money you're willing to give in order to have the mug. And so it turns out that's uh, almost one to two, the, the ratio in terms of those. So the ones who are giving up the mug value typically double uh, to those who, who don't have a mug and think about buying one. And that within minutes, uh, having the mug in front of them. And so that's that has been repeated in many different versions and kinds. It could be mugs versus pens. One group gets you know, writing pens and uh, the other one gets mugs and they can trade. And pe people typically don't trade for the mm -hmm. same reason because they appreciate the thing that they have and they feel much stronger about giving something up uh, than gaining something. And this is what we call reference-dependent preferences, uh, Kahneman-Tavorsky. You know, I put this theory out there called prospect theory, um, and this is basically the more general version of it, is that you have a reference point 
And this changes when you have the mug in front of you, your reference point is now having the mug versus mm. not having it for the other group. And so with with all the experiments that go on in behavioral economics in general, what is it actually like going back to, I guess, everyday situations, how does that actually apply um, back to it, kind of someone like me who doesn't only heard the term two days ago? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a very excellent question. The so we, we can there's multiple topics we happily can talk to where I see very much the day-to-day application and where I get feedback from students that they actually feel like this has enriched their personal lives, not just when they're taking the course, the mm. behavioral economics course, not just the uh, sort of understanding of economic theory and uh, and application to you know uh, the economy or but their personal decision making. And uh, reference-dependent preferences in particular, we see uh, a lot. So as I just mentioned, there's this reference point and you're judging relative to this. And that's, for example, true for people who have uh, delved into trading stocks on a, on a, on a stock exchange. Um, you typically compare your current um, stocks always to the and it's even displayed like this in in your portfolio online and so forth, to the to the price you bought it for, mm-hmm. and then judge uh, if, how you feel about selling this stock or keeping this stock on that basis, which is not a rational thing to do. Obviously, you mm-hmm. should only treat the stock in terms of should you keep it or should you get rid of it in terms of its prospect, no matter if it has fallen relative to the price you paid for it, or mm-hmm. it has risen to the price to pay for it. But we can clearly see in studies that people have the tendency to sell stocks that are uh, have risen in the past and hold on much longer to stocks who have actually fallen relative to what they paid for it, mm-hmm. which turns out to be not the right thing to do, because if you then follow this over time, you see that the ones who had risen in the past, actually often the ones who continue to rise, and you should have hold, held on to those rather than, than the ones... Uh, uh, you you actually kept, which is the ones who had fallen short of what you paid for them, but my guess still go you know up over time as as they often do, but uh, less so than the ones that you actually got rid of. Mm. But we since we we evaluate our you know uh, ha- utility from making this comparison, it feels like a loss. It feels like a pain um, to sell a stock that has lost money relative to what we bought it for. And that's something that uh, um, we might overcome if we realize it. Um, so is it more a thing of once you're aware of uh, these things in place, you can then take you know, active action into kind of changing your own? Yeah, it's sort of the, uh, you're right. It's sort of the, the first step is realizing what is going on and how you are behaving in a way that is against your own interests in a way mm. and then being able to, once you once you realize how that works being able to counter it by making more conscious decisions and really thinking uh, with the example of the stocks really thinking about if it, if it wouldn't be better to sell the ones with a loss now mm. and just rather hold on to the other ones for example uh, we typically also take more risks um, so there's this double or nothing, so you're doing a bet with someone and you know one of you lost and the other one gained. It's typically the one who lost who is the one who's keen to do double or nothing yep. compared to the one who won. 
and again, uh, relative to the reference point, which we assume in this case is before the first wager you had with each other, mm. uh, one person is in the gain domain, so one person is above it, and one's lost, and that loss feels really bad. So there, in order to uh, you know, get rid of that first loss, we, we say the further away you're from the reference point, the less harsh the, the feeling about an extra incremental loss. Mm. And you are, as the one who lost the first wager, you're happy to you know, risk that amount again in order to have the chance to get back, to back. That, that first one that you lost, which you really feel worst about or feel mm. most uh, intense about. Um, how did you stumble into this whole field? Like, how did... Once again, I, I guess coming from a place where having never even been aware of the of this whole world, like how did you actually come into behavioral economics? This was my exposure at Berkeley. So at the time when I went there, first I was an exchange student mm-hmm. within my master's from the Humboldt University. And uh, we had an exchange program with the University of California. And I applied to be at Berkeley. And one of the reasons was that, I, that they had these interesting... Um, courses in in this new field of behavioral economics and I was interested in doing those so I got assigned to Berkeley and I went there and I took these classes and I was psyched and there was wonderful people Matthew Rabin in particular at the time and Botan Kosegi who were essentially running the program and running these courses and they're they're you know as all the faculty there is beautiful but uh, they were inspiring mm-hmm. um, and so i went back uh, to do my phd there and did more of these courses that uh, you know more more in that area and um I made that one of my fields of specialization mm-hmm. um it'd be naive to think that if you know if you know about this and you have the awareness you're able to use it to help yourself navigate through but for people who, for example, if once once I start becoming more aware of behavioural economics, it'd be naive to think that I would maybe be in be wanting to kind of use that knowledge in my advantage with other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So in a way, I always think that behavioural economics is not too far removed from a much older field, which also takes pride or also takes a lot of interest in psychology uh, which is marketing mm, right so and 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 if you work in that area or if you marketing market anything yourself mm. uh, uh, being aware of these behavioral anomalies that people exhibit helps you a lot in order to you know foster your agenda in terms of selling more or getting them to do something yeah right so we, we for example again related to this uh, endowment effect or a reference point type uh, preferences that we talked about earlier there's this attachment effect which is something that's typically used used in marketing mm. so there's there's a book uh, by Cornelli uh, talking about all kinds of marketing um so, sort of uh, instruments that people use and uh, you know a car deal car dealers typically are very good in in you know is is a big item right yeah. getting you know getting people to and and so they use this so-called attachment effect uh, which is basically getting you to believe you might get a really good deal on this get you to take it around the corner ride it a bit you know f- f- start feeling attached to it yep. and then when you get back uh, even though you don't get that perfect deal in the end uh, that attachment makes you value this item because you sort of slowly essentially shifting your reference point makes Mm -hmm. you because it feels like a loss if you then 
eventually don't yeah. get to buy it, even though you already thought, yeah, you know, I can see myself. I, you know, you start uh, developing this this reference, this new reference point, this new attachment, and so you get people, you get uh, more money from people, or get more likely get them to buy an object like a car. In this example, mm. if you get them attached to it, similarly, you have this uh, sort of eBay. Uh, sort of phenomena when you are the leading bidder for a while, right? Yeah. And you're getting the idea of you're going to own this, right? And then someone you know jumps you, and and you suddenly start bidding more, even though theoretically you should have just bid your valuation in the yeah. first place, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, eBay is a bit different to uh, sort of a victory auction, so it's not necessarily true that you should already early on bid your maximum valuation. There's other reasons for that, but. To the, the general idea is the phenomena that we see that people get this sort of attachment to an object which they not really own yet, mm -hmm. which they're just a leading bidder on for a while, and then they're happily paying more than they might have otherwise um, in the end for it because they're keen to get it and not lose it again, even though they never owned it really. Yeah. But so these sort of uh, elements relate back to yourself and then obviously also what you can how you, how you could use these in order to influence other people to buy something or yeah is something. there much research into i mean like i said it's one thing to know about it and then to try and actively make the decision um to maybe not be so irrational or logical but does any research point to at our core we can't help it Yeah, so th these are legitimate preferences, right? So it's not necessarily that you are... Uh, so, so this is sometimes a confusing bit for the students that I teach too, because often we talk about rational homo economicus and then we yeah. have all these alternative theories and it appears that uh, any of these sort of behaviors are irrational, mm. which, which is not necessarily the case at all, right? If this is your preference, this is your preference. Right. Um, Let's say you have uh, social preferences where you do care about the outcomes of others. Then that's not an irrational thing to do. That's just mm -hmm. a preference. It's just part of what makes you feel happy is that the others get something as well or mm -hmm. uh, get a part of the pie, let's say, if you have something to distribute. And uh, just one of, of a number of examples. Then we, we do have uh, phenomena that clearly indicate that you're not rational and and uh, they're often very deeply rooted as you were saying in in ourselves essentially we won't overcome them and this is wow. this is the topic of uh, heart which, which uh, again Kahneman and Tversky were big into uh, originally uh, um, Tversky died early Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in 2002 so he got recognized for mm -hmm. all his work in this field and they have um, studied the assessment of um, objective probabilities uh, through understanding what mistakes we make. Mm. And the idea is that we, rule, that we can't you know, apply statistics and probability theory all the time to a perfect level uh, for each decision we're making. It's just mentally not yeah. possible for us. I mean, we can do it if it's something really important and we still might need training in order to do it properly. Uh, so it's, it's not realistic to assume that we engage every time in that level but we still have to gouge somehow the possible outcomes and their probabilities in order to make a decision mm. and we do that by rules of thumb which they call heuristics in this case so heuristics, heuristics 
is sort of different rules of thumb that we use in order to assess these, you know, probabilities for outcomes in nature. And uh, in that context, they focused on the biases of these mm. and to find if there's systematic ways we keep on getting it wrong. And there is systematic ways we keep on getting it wrong. And um, one of those is related to short sequences, right? So even even for people who've, who've studied this uh, uh, extensively in university, they're still making the mistakes. We know that um, you get the true distribution of, for example, the black and red colors on the roulette table coming up if you, you know, run a thousand rolls and you get, you know, roughly uh, green apart, zero apart, you get uh, roughly half or really close to half or green, uh, sorry, half a red, red and yeah. half a black. But people translate that into short sequences as well without realizing that there's no need to expect that to be true in the short run. Mm. So in the casino, again, the casino is using this, right? So they display for you the last six, ten uh, rolls of the of what the outcomes, mm. in particular with colors. And so they suggest if there's four or five black ones that came up just recently in the last four or five throws on the roulette table, uh, they use that because they know that people out there will then see, oh, this doesn't really look like a half-half distribution. There's definitely yeah. a red one coming because red hasn't come up in a while. <laughs> and they're independent, they're independent draw. So yeah. there's, no, there's no reason that there's, nothing changes in terms of the probability for it being red or black. But people start having, through using this heuristic, this doesn't look representative in this case of a true distribution for half-half mm. red and black. So they feel like a red one is due, then it will look much more representative than another black one following this, right? Yeah. And so they start betting. They start betting more because they feel more confident about knowing something, you know, knowing this is maybe a 60% chance of <laughs> red coming, even you know, even though that's not the case. And so uh, this is something deeper, deeper rooted. And um, uh, these heuristics are useful for us to, to use. Mm. They're a very, very useful thing. Um, Giga Renzo, for example, calls them smart heuristics. He studies it from the perspective of how good they work for us. And Kahneman and Tversky just take the other route and, and look if, uh, in terms of where the bias is, like looking, studying vision through illusion and so forth. Uh, it's both valuable. Mm. How do you look at it? Um, we typically take, it's it, from an economic point, it's more... V it's arguably more valuable looking at the biases because mm -hmm. then you can track them and you can prove them better too. You can, yep. um, in experiments or such. Um, another one is the availability heuristic. So if you are uh, having to guess um, certain numbers, like how many people each year per 100,000 die of plane crashes and suicide and drowning in a pool and so forth. People typically, or car crashes, people typically overestimate the numbers of things that often come in the media, in the news, mm. like car crashes or plane crashes, and underestimate the ones that typically are less often in the news, like um, drowning yeah. or, or suicide or other ones. And um, again, this one one field in this uh, so 
this is not quite gambling, but it's very, very much related. Lottery, playing in a lottery. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. It's also something that is quite fascinating because the chances of winning in a lottery are so low that really it's not worth it. It's sort of attacks yeah. on people who play lotto. And uh, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, it gets uh, too much public advertisement and mm -hmm. draws the money out of uh, the pockets of people who... Uh, could re really do well with that money in other other ways. Uh, so it's sort of a tax more relatively on the poor. Mm. Um, in any case, um, one of the reasons why we think that people underappreciate how often they will lose in lotto and, and have a much higher positive view of potentially winning there and therefore playing it is that we don't show the millions of people uh, who've lost. Yeah. If you see someone, which you do, you know, on a regular basis, then it's someone who won. Mm -hmm. And that's much more present in the people's minds when they're trying to recall what the likelihoods are and when they're having to use this heuristic in order to gouge the how likely is it for me to win. Mm -hmm. They don't go through the numbers like, you know, I have one in uh, 50,000 chance to, you know, get a thousand dollars or something and so forth they're not going through those calculations but they're going by a heuristic by a rule of thumb by mm. a feeling in this case it's informed by our uh, knowledge or exposure to facts on a regular basis through rehearsal memory rehearsal mm. um, and that influences us through your personal experience do you find yourself trying to hack the system in a way because you're kind of so aware of it Well, I, I, I think I do apply the, so, you know, the, I, for the topic of stocks that we had earlier, yeah. I, I do apply that to myself trying to, and I have to remind myself, you know, even after all these years and after being very well aware of it and of this being not a very rational thing to do, you have to consciously make yourself aware of it and consciously uh, decide independent of what you paid for the stock mm -hmm. in terms of do you want to sell it or not. We have this the same phenomena of people being really reluctant to sell houses when they bought it at a relative, you know, local peak in the housing market and, mm. and they are a few years down the road, they want to sell it and the market has gone down slightly. It's not a phenomenon that we see typically in Australia, but in other places or in other decades maybe. Um, and uh, similarly, we see that people don't, are really reluctant to sell the house for less than they've bought it for. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, uh, having this reference point of really feeling really sore about uh, losing relative to it. Um, but yes, just in general, in terms of heuristics and everything, be, being aware of it, and that's also true for me, um, mm. certainly helps overcome some of these uh, shortcomings. Wow. There's, a, there's an important one that we haven't... So this, this, these were two topics which are certainly fruitful in terms of reflecting a bit in your own life as well but another big topic which i think is probably the most fruitful of them all we haven't touched and that's uh, how we are changing our minds over time and how we having um so the root cause is actually so this this is uh, decision making over time just in you know the broad aspect of it but the root cause of it is actually that we counter to popular belief there's not one you know patience factor that we have yeah 
So there's sort of Samuelson's type discounting function, which just that delta discounting, like we use for financials and stuff, is something that we typically, that is easy to work with and at the time was very popular to be adapted and people forgot over centuries, or, sorry, decades, uh, that the or original philosophers within, you know, what today we would call economists, back then were just generally philosophers, actually thought of a lot of reasons why people would save money for later that were really psycho psychologically motivated. Mm. And I got lost when uh, when we found, uh, you know, when Samuelson proposed this really simple, and, and he was aware of it. He said, I'm only proposing this really simple one-factor discounting model because it is easy to operate. It's easy to work with. And then uh, people adopted it and for forgot sort of the origins. And now we have come back over the last uh, three decades realizing that there's a lot of things that go counter to this type of um, modeling the patient's level. And the key is that we have a short-run desire. We have a, we are really impatient in the short run. And we are much more patient, have a very different patient level for the long run. Mm. Um, which leads to this, what I was trying to get at, this really interesting phenomena of us procrastinating stuff, of us not saving enough for retirement, uh, not getting our work done, uh, eating unhealthy, right? Yeah. All of these things, and that's quite a lot in our life, have to do with this one simple phenomenon or idea is that in the long run, I want to be healthy. I mm. want to live long and have a healthy life. In the short run, you know, yeah, right now I'd like that beer. <laughs> right now I eat that burger rather than just a salad or something. Relatable, right? yeah. Um, and then tomorrow I can eat healthier. Uh, or next month I eat healthier, mm. right? And uh, typically this repeats itself. When tomorrow comes, I'm as starving at that moment, and this burger sounds really good. Why wouldn't I order it, right? But in the long run, I'm actually keen on having a healthier life, uh, keeping keeping my body in shape and living a few years longer. Mm. Is that and, just a case of well, collectively or individually actually setting our own boundaries and, and I guess that's the people who do plan ahead. If we're talking about, for example, health and well-being, uh, so glad you brought this up because this is literally one that I dealt with last week was I was like, I'm only going to eat like healthy raw foods all week. I'm going to be on vegetables, fruits, nothing but organic produce, nothing processed. And then yesterday I got home really late and just found myself eating this massive bowl of migraine noodles and just like afterwards just being like, why? <laughs> why? But then it, it, in my mind, reflecting back on it, I was like, well, if I just prepared some meals earlier, waiting for me, like waiting there, could I have gotten past that? But then even this morning, I did the same thing again. Is there, I, I don't know, I, I feel like personally anyway, going around in these circles, how do you break that cycle? So what you said with preparing a meal is actually the key thing, right? So commitment, we call it, we, we, talk, we say commitment devices. These are partial commitment devices. So mm -hmm. you're never going to be having a full commitment device where you say, if I don't do this, I fall, uh, fall over dead, right? So, yeah. or, you know, hold, hold, no one is holding a gun to your head to do something. So it's always going to be partial commitment. You can always get out of it if you want to. Mm -hmm. But any, any sort of commitment, any sort of partial commitment, like preparing your meals in advance and have it waiting there for you and having reduced the cost of, at the time, not just to eat healthy, but to even make the healthy food that you need to eat, which takes time and effort mm -hmm. and you might be tired and you might really not feel like it anyhow. 
uh, but having it there uh, reduces the costs of it through your commitment and therefore is the perfect vehicle in order for you to sort of carry through with something. Mm. Do you think that's more to do with just like building that discipline muscle of uh, kind of like getting into the habit of being that healthier version of yourself? It's a constant fight. Yeah. I don't know if you ever get better at it. I don't think, because it's coming back down to those patience levels, yeah. right? I mean, you get in habits, and habits make things easier. And, and developing a habit, you know, just following it without thinking about it, uh, that's that certainly will help. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, I, I agree. Uh, the, 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 the habit development, uh, basically, if you want to think about it, reduces your costs and your... Uh, and you get used to it and everything, so it feels less of a burden once you eat you know, healthy every day. If you thought it was a burden in the beginning, it might feel much less so mm. after a little while. But overall, we still have that same short-run desire of eating unhealthy, of um, you know, not, not studying today and procrastinate that till next week or till tomorrow <laughs> and rather lounge at the couch a bit and watch some television or something. That sort of constant fight is always going to be there mm. through these uh, different uh, um, feelings that we have for right now versus... Uh, so we're always going to prefer something that is nice for us right now. Yeah. And we're going to always tentatively push something that is work or negative utility into the, into a future period if we can. And mm. that, that can be a bad spiral in terms of continuous procrastination and ending up not eating healthy enough, ending up not studying enough, uh, or any of the other related phenomena. Mm. Uh, I'm going to assume, do you subscribe to the, like, uh, cha- things like challenges, you know? Very good, very good topic, very yeah. good topic. So that's a way of commitment. It's, uh, it's very much a way of, I mean, you could say habit building if you do it uh, mainly for yourself, uh, but also all the social media these days. I mean, you know, there's uh, smart scales, obviously, where you can send it straight to your feed or whatever. And uh, there's obviously more commonly, uh, you have your run uh, apps or sport apps yep, that might up. report somewhere uh, and, and uh, or to your friends or to some circle so that uh, you feel uh, partially committed mm. to do the exercise because you know there's some people who are going to look over it and who uh, judge you by it. And mm. so it generates an extra cost and extra incentive for you to actually do the things you want to do by having through social media or through um, apps that keep you at rhythm or anything like it to commit to a um, continuous program of whatever it is you're working towards too. Mm. So do you feel like that public accountability in the long term might help more than just being like, I'm in my own world, here's these rules I've set for myself? Oh, I think it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on, you know, uh, resulting uh, psychological issues Mm. from social media in general, but that particular aspect, just focusing on you committing to something that you really want to achieve and then obviously that can go maybe overboard too if you want to lose weight and it becomes an unhealthy issue there's obviously all these caveats but overall i think the social media giving you this opportunity to easily connect with people in a in an in a uh, in a way that is not weird or anything uh, to help you sustain healthy living measures, be it eating, be it sport, be it studying, be it mm. anything you want, really, um, is 
useful because that avenue wasn't really there before. I mean, you could have talked to your friend on a regular basis, but this sort of seemingly integrated mm. in, in this way works much better without having... Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that... On that same topic and on that same train, having a, a peer group or, or that tribe thing of if everyone else around me is kind of on this same mm. level or doing these same things... I'm assuming that you're more likely to actually want to appease that and be part of that. Yeah. 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 So the key is actually to get everyone else to trying to be doing the same thing. Yeah. I get, so you certainly sort of this is the social comp component of um, pushing each other. Yeah. In this context. Yeah. If you have a common dimension, a common topic where you want to do that with at a time and. Mm. For example, this year we're gonna, you know, try form healthier uh, exercise uh, habits, and next year we're gonna form healthier uh, food habits. Mm. Either way, right? For example, th th these would be because uh, you might spread it too thin. You might do all at once, and it all fails because no one focuses on anything. Is true. Yeah, the uh, focus. Well, and this is from experience as well. I, I guess the the thing with that is. Going, if we focus on, for example, let's be healthier and be more fit, let's exercise more. Uh, what I found uh, the last couple of years, I was trying to do similar things of like these challenges and, and trying to like change these, the bad habits, quote unquote. Um, what I found was after I'd completed, so one was, was a challenge I was trying last year, I did last year, for 75 days, you have these five things you do, exercise twice a day, drink a gallon of water, rah, rah made it to the end of the 75 days and in my mind I was like cool I've ticked that off now I am a healthier better me and I can move on to this next part of my life that I can be better at uh, within I want to be gracious to myself and say it was a month I was probably back to eating unhealthy again so it's like it doesn't matter if you kind of take even an extended amount of time to do this by the time you move on to the next thing you kind of like fall off the other thing you were doing does that make sense? <clears throat> so, again, it's, uh, it's actually something that we come back to the very first topic we talked about, reference-dependent preferences, because yeah. sort of you're, you're trying to d do this good behavior and you manage to do it for 75 days to uh, be really healthy. And uh, once you break it, once you're the streak that you were having, once you, once you fail it, uh, we find that actually dieters, for example, then fail it big time. They're mm. not just, you know, starting to be a little bit unhealthy, but starting to be really unhealthy compared to what they really tried hard beforehand. And so the, the reasoning here is that that might be due to the fact that once you, once you uh, fell under your healthy living reference point a bit, uh, that really hurt and it really feels bad. But once you're already there, then doing a bit more unhealthy doesn't feel as bad yeah. additionally. And therefore, once you go down that way, you often go down much further than we may expect uh, mm. in terms of all the effort you have put in beforehand. So, A lot of diminishing return on it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so there's... Look, I try to be optimistic, but it kind of feels like um, it's, it's not. We're not really able to. I mean, I'm, I know we are able to be better and, and to take all these lessons and, and you know research like what you're doing, being aware of it, we're able to apply it and be conscious about it. The, 
it kind of seems like at the end of the day, our inherent behaviours and, and our habits kind of will always trump us. I couldn't... Yep, I, I agree. <laughs> and unfortunately, that is probably in parts of the message. So it comes back to trying to set up a habit that is sustainable. Mm. So anything that is really hard for you to do, if you do a 75-day pro, 75 program and it's a struggle still after a couple of weeks, it probably is not going to stick. Mm. You have to find something that you can integrate in your life, given all the other things you have going on, uh, and it sort of seemingly fits as just a small change with a big mm. effect. Um, so, for example, for some people, it will be good if they're keen on a diet or something to do the 16-8, right? So where you, you eat in the eight hours, whatever you want, but then oh, yeah. you eat an early dinner and a late late uh, breakfast and you have basically a roughly 16-hour break. And that's something that people often can integrate into their current routines quite well and it has a big effect in terms of the fasting, the short-term fasting mm-hmm. that the body does. Um, and if that works for you, uh, that might be something that is easily sustainable in the long run, that will be much more valuable than you trying to count the calories on each day and trying really hard to stay under 2,000 or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, that is very effortful, so you might not carry through with it. Uh, that is really restrictive in terms of what you can eat. Sometimes that's not suitable when you're a guest somewhere or when the choices are not that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, this is just an example for, in this case, healthy eating or a dietary regime, but as a key, I think, for whatever challenge or habit formation type approach you're taking, make sure you find the one that integrates with your current life mm. so that it, it, it is not too demanding on you and therefore can become second nature and can become a sort of long-term habit. Mm. I think that must be maybe key in terms of... Making it stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you're given all the keys right now. I think, I think, yeah, that's a much better way to look at it. I, I never, I mean, it seems so simple now that you say it and I'm hearing it, but it's definitely not a way that I've looked at it uh, ever before of just going, well, just do these increments that kind of fit already within what you're doing. It's always kind of been this going overboard. Well, you can try them out, right? This is a way of trying them out. And then yeah. they either do stick or you have to, you have to choose another <laughs> one. Um, you know, you have to eventually, you know, it's good in theory. Any, any of those approaches sound really, you know, especially the beautiful outcomes you have in the long run, which you really <laughs> care about, which yeah. is why we're doing it. Uh, when your short run impatience kicks in, that might look different. But yeah, um, you might not on paper understand it fully and realize how well it works for you. And then you try it out. Mm. And if not, you maybe pick another one. And if still following your long-term goals of getting, you know, getting there, getting to, live healthier, eat more local, eat more vegetables, whatever it is. It's certainly uh, not going away as a desire that you have. And there's also no reason that if you failed in one of these approaches and one of these habit-forming challenges, for example, that you wouldn't succeed with another one longer term. Mm. And it seems like the environment also will obviously play such a big part of that. Like if we're, you know, having all, you know, finishing late, if all my options are what McDonald's and whatever else, like it's, it's pretty simple where I'm going to go to get food. So it's that environmental factor as well. 
So that's a very, very good point uh, coming to, yeah, I was just going to put in another topic that we haven't talked about. <laughs> so it's also something to do with, uh, with our preferences over time. In this case, we often what we call projection bias. So we, we project our current preferences on future preferences. Mm. And that leads to phenomena of, uh, it's particularly relevant for phenomena of uh, addiction to beds, uh, cigarettes or whatever, that sort of thing, um, that uh, even if we are undergoing the painful early uh, process of stopping, stop smoking, so yeah. our long-term goals, we want to live healthy, we decide we definitely want to stop smoking. Uh, it's not clear that often people don't follow through because of the short-run desire we've said, well, we're not going to stop today, we can stop next month and then repeatedly do this sort of thing. Uh, but even if you manage, and often people do, have uh, short spells of where they assume, where they uh, sort of stop smoking, they often have re recidivism of it. And that is partially what you were saying just then, when the environment changes. So we might have a phase where maybe it's warm in summer rather than cold in winter, and we feel like we could stop smoking now. This mm. doesn't bother me too much. Uh, and then uh, we project that into the future and uh, our current preferences because of the weather, because of the circumstance, because of the time of the day. And we we think, yeah, this this will be our preferences. We can withstand. We can we get we can hold back, and then uh, and that's a good thing for getting going. Mm. And that explains why people get going and then stop again. And the stopping is when you fall into old habits. It's a late evening or it's cold, and you really have a different craving because your craving fluctuates with these circumstances, mm. with these outside factors that you were describing. Um, then uh, your craving. In, a, in, a, in, in these, in these um, circumstances, spikes and you feel like you certainly want that cigarette, for example, now. Um, but you also project that it will be much harder to keep on stopping in the future. To you know, uh, yeah. It's not just you, th you think, I want it right now, and then oh, if I overcome that tomorrow, we'll be fine again. We project these current preferences, these strong craving preferences that we have for this particular bad so not a good, but a bad yeah. that we that we are about to potentially consume to do our short run desire. We project that to be as difficult to withstand in the future, in the next periods, next days and weeks, and then we may be given. Yeah. So these outer circumstances triggering us mm. to fall back into habits that we had overcome prior with a lot of effort are actually quite tricky, and that sort of we think relates a lot to the wrong projection of uh, the state that we're currently feeling very strongly, the current preferences that we're feeling, and that we're projecting these preferences mm. uh, unfiltered un, you know, uh, into the future, even though they do fluctuate, and we should realize that too. So it will be harder to start an attempt to stop a consumption of a bad than we might think at the time we do it, but at the same time it will also be easier to not... Uh, give back into it uh, and withstand it longer when we have this sudden craving again because mm. we both the low craving we project out into the future and the high craving we reflect out into the future leading us to um, uh, overestimate or, or underestimate either one of them mm. when you're talking about the the long-term effect of everything how it seems like we don't usually think too far ahead um, I was having a conversation the other day kind of tying together that and also this environmental thing. Um, back when I was younger and played sports, we used to get 
these vouchers, basically like McDonald's vouchers for playing sport and doing it well. And it was like our reward for like exercising and <laughs> yeah. being outside was to like get unhealthy meals. Um, but from what I understand, they're not really doing that as much now. I think they found different sponsors. And probably. I think they they uh, they still do have sponsors, but I think they're just not necessarily uh, fast food chains. Yeah, but I guess what I'm getting at is is over the long run, is it that the more awareness is coming to us, maybe the environment is shifting towards the trends of being more you know healthier or eating better, kind of giving that option up front. Yeah. So I think. Um, so there's definitely a shift, uh, for example, very different topic and maybe one that we should actually get to at some stage uh, during this podcast because it's a very important one, saving and uh, how to deal with money, saving for retirement, uh, sort of spending and saving in general. Uh, but yeah, just when you mentioned it in terms of schools and young children who are obviously more susceptible to advertisement in general and mm. to any of these things, uh, as I've heard the ACT uh, just, you know, ruled uh, that uh, these banking programs that have been around for decades uh, in terms of uh, getting schools and kids to early sign up to banking accounts with certain banks who are sponsoring it. I think uh, the Commonwealth Bank is probably one of them. Uh, And they're sort of um, phasing this out, trying to stop it because they realize that uh, it's more advertisement Mm. from the the, uh, for the banks who were able to run this program, then it would help the kids in terms of uh, developing early on a good savings habit. Good savings habits, yeah. Um, and so there's still education, right? We have, uh, you know, financial uh, literacy type education in schools, which I think is a very beneficial thing to do because not everyone gets to touch on that later in their lives again. Mm. And so having it somewhere in the curricular where everyone has a feeling for the general basics of it is is probably a very good thing. Uh, But they're going to start doing this uh, sort of away from the old model where the uh, banks were spawning. So I think this just one example of similar to the to one with the McDonald's yeah. watches that you were talking about. So yeah. I think they're becoming much more sensitive to what type of uh, advertisement we let to our kids and that that's a very uh, sensible area uh, where you have to think not just about the benefits and, and the costs in a very simple way, but also, you know, they're getting extra material, they're getting extra education, they're getting, you know, accounts set up uh, and the bank pays money and probably sponsors other things. But at the same time, you have to be more sensible in terms of the ethical implications and what else is going on. And if it's fast food vouchers after sport events, that may be <laughs> sort of the wrong sort of idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh now, I didn't even think about going into the saving money. Uh, you're about to save oh, my life, I'm guessing. I mean, to. I would love to because that is another thing that I'm sure myself and many others are dealing with constantly. Um, yeah. Do you have keys? Do you have what What can you tell me about saving money? Because it's, yeah. So this is very, very much relates to the healthy eating or good study habits or work habits that we have. So it's... The same phenomena, short-run desire, long-run cost, uh, sorry, short-run desire, but long-run preferences who are much more patient. So yes, we want to save enough to be able to, you know, 
have have the funds to maybe buy a house or get in mm-hmm. the housing market or we you know at some stage we want to have enough to retire so we have to think about these long-term goals that we do have to be you know long-term financially sound and we have our short-run desires and that's there's something that costs money i would like it and i would need to spend that money for it mm-hmm. and uh, as we've talked about earlier these short-run desires as by the name of it are really strong because we discount the future a lot relative to right now. Uh, so if we are given instruments like a credit card that we can overspend, yep. then we have the tendency to do this. And uh, and the result is that people are often in debt uh, with very expensive credit card debt on that, while they uh, would actually like to uh, save more for long term as well right so the, so then there's you know there's all these advices to counter this to commit again have a sort of a partial commitment it's all back to myopia all back to um of really caring about the now so much more than the near future or the long term future yeah uh, in the in the moment and uh so you could you know it, <laughs> the typical classical ones these days are hardly relevant because we have our credit cards on our phones and watches and so forth where to freeze your credit card in the in the fridge so that oh. you you have like a you know, like an extra time to really think about if you want to make this purchase right now because you need to wait till it unfreezes. Uh, but the general idea still is there, right? Yeah. So even though that sounds funny and, and uh, far-fetched these days, you get this extra um, period to think about it more carefully and think if, th- if this is really what you want. Mm. Yeah. And by, by doing so, you can use some mental tricks. Uh, so this is Richard Taylor's mental accounting ideas uh, is the idea that uh, not just with accounts on our uh, bank uh, one for saving maybe one one for sort of uh, sort of day-to-day spending but that we also formulate right just uh, hypothetically in our mind uh, accounts that we stick to and mm. they might guide us really well and give us self-enforced limits um, to Think about the spending in the right context relative mm-hmm. to other spending that's relative that that's similar. So we might have an entertainment account uh, where we say, okay, this month, given my budget, uh, I have I don't know uh, two hundred dollars for entertainment. If I go out with friends right now, this will cost me going to the bar forty dollars tonight. Uh, I can do that, but then at the end of the month, I was gonna go a few times to the movies. I probably have to. You know, cut some of cut some of that. So it gives us, because it is uh, it's hard for us to really appreciate how much something is worth it when we not integrate with the relative alternative decisions that are relevant. And in this case, these mental accounts might help us focus and make the right comparison mm. and give us a better idea of which of these entertainment options that I have now versus the ones that are still coming up. And I all have to fit within my budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones are worthwhile? Is that ticket, for example, a ticket to the concert, mm-hmm. which costs I don't know a hundred dollars? Is that is that going to be worth it to me? Is that how much I appreciate it? How much I'm willing to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Or is that going to be uh, too much? And that's a hard thing for us to judge by these relative comparisons in our mental accounts with the relative other uh, relevant decisions helps us make a better decision in that case. Mm. I think those um, things like the separate accounts, what what 
uh, kind of blocks the progress of that for because I've tried a similar thing actually, and what I found was the issue was accessibility to the, all the accounts all the time. There was no, I have all these accounts, but with the technology, I can kind of, in the short term, transfer money between them very quickly, very easily. So I've heard things like you know having the different account bank accounts or different people, so it's not you don't get access to it straight away. Um, and another thing that you reminded me of that I forgot that I used to do was I have a document that's uh, for future Kojo. So if I want something, I put it on that list and I have to wait 30 days. And if on in 30 days, on that 30th day, if I still want it, I purchase it. Yeah, if good. on that 30th day that I don't purchase it, then it has to stay on for another 30 days. Yeah. Um, and that worked really well, but I forgot all about it. <laughs> good habit to get back into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's that's exactly. It's sort of giving you the giving you time to think about it. Mm. And if you still want it, then it's maybe not such a short term desire only, but also more long term. And that's uh, and in terms of the different accounts, that's essentially what people do in order to save more long term. They uh, put a certain number of dollars mm. and commit as again as a partial commitment. Pretty strong one, typically once you set it up, commit uh, to put a certain uh, amount of money away into a thing, and that if you if you buy a house and you have to pay off the house, that is you know putting away into your equity there, yeah. or it could be a savings account where uh, automatically you transfer you know hundred dollars every month uh, or every fortnight into that savings account, uh, and that's. Uh, there are different ones, but I'm, I, I expect some of them are harder to access or will mm. incur costs. And once you have set it up, uh, that's this inertia again, this procrastination kicks in and we are less likely to change it. So mm. that same procrastination that harms us often enough in terms of getting our work done and eating healthy and all that sort of stuff helps us savings yeah. once we've set it up. We just have to sort of set it up. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right about it. It's kind of like what's easiest, um, like closestly available and easiest available. One thing I was doing for a while also in this whole phase of, of trying to just like challenge myself with different things was realizing my phone usage. And I found a simple thing like having my phone just like three meters away, just out of my reach, made me use it at, at least 60, 70% less than when it was just on the table in my reach. And it was that realization of I'm that lazy that just just it being out of reach was enough for me to not use it enough. That's it. That's exactly it. So we're using our own little um, behavioral tweaks mm. or, 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 or you know, short fallings to help us commit in this particular case. So that's the hack with behavioral economics then. Just by, by being aware of it, I guess. And one thing that I do want to understand better though is uh, behavioral psychology versus behavioral economics. I think... I think I was putting them in the same box a lot or I understand that, well, you correct me if I'm wrong, but behavioural economics more relates to obviously like economics and, and money and how that works. Um, can you just explain the two and kind of differentiate them better? So they will be pretty close. Uh, the main difference will be that behavioural economics is sort of situated among economically trained people typically and the other one among psycholo psycho psychologically trained people. So um, the approaches used to be much more different or basically converging. We taking ideas from psychology, mm. looking at their studies, getting inspiration. Uh, we bringing still our more um, modeling and formulaic approach to it. So even though we're making models more complicated and they're not, there's not one model, you know, capturing all these aspects, but we try to 
formalize these aspects to think about them in a more formal way to then get a better insight into it. Mm. Whereas um, psychology traditionally had uh, a more um, approach where they look at a particular phenomena that they study and gets named and and explored in terms of uh, the typical behavior in these. And there might be very specific, uh, very specific circumstances where this phenomena appeared. And then economists, since our job is essentially to advise policymakers in there, you know, we need a, a uh, approach which is more disaggregated, where we're looking from above, sort of, sorry, mm-hmm. aggregated, more aggregated, where we're seeing some sort of bigger picture in terms of setting up a policy that applies to this many thousands of people and what is going to be, you know, uh, the outcome, even though they all have different walks of life and, mm-hmm. and come to having to make this particular decision in their financials, for example. And how can we help them on aggregate? And uh, so we take the finan- the ideas of psychology, formulate them into uh, a model that applies to multiple situations, which the psychologist would study individually. We sort of abstract from the very specifics to a slightly more abstract model, but mm. not going all the way to the homo economicus, which is so abstract that it doesn't work anymore. Mm. Right? Do something in between. Uh, and then use that in order to give policy advice. Right. So, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is basically trying to get the people who have the ability to change the environment to change the environment through the research? Or not really? I, I, changing, the, well, we, 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 do you mean the policy environment? Yeah. Or the, yeah, the, sort of the rules and the, the things that guide us in our decision-making? Yeah. Yes, most certainly. I mean, that's... What politics essentially does, right? It gives us the rules by which things work, within, and we, yeah. we we live in it. And this called society, I guess, in a way. Not all is not all is coming through politics, yeah. but <laughs> lot, lots of other it. stuff. Uh, gosh, yeah. uh, but uh, but yes, the ones that can be influenced or need to be influenced because there's some market failure, because people are behaving against their own interests and don't save anything for retirement, for example. Uh, when there is a reason to. Uh, interfere in the current system and tweak it, uh, then you want the advice of an economist looking at what's the status quo, Mm. uh, how a particular change would change the behavior of people, and what are the welfare outcomes for the whole lot of people and for Mm. the the government as a whole in terms of their budget. And in that process, uh, um, we do... It, it is often, not always, you know, sometimes behavioral has nothing to do with it. It's just the standard neoclassical stuff will give you the same answer. But often enough, uh, there are aspects of individual decision making which go by these many phenomena that we've talked about and, and others, which if you understand these as well, you might formulate a different policy change than you would have had otherwise mm. in place. And uh, Often there are small changes, but it's also not very costly to do that, given how involved all these policy changes are in the first place. Uh, that's an additional instrument in the mix in order to make it a better policy in the end. Sometimes mm-hmm. it has a big effect. Defaults are something that have a huge effect on people because right? the procrastination and sticking with something that's in place, as we've talked all earlier. So what defaults you're setting is a huge to understand that this will make a huge difference for the vast majority of people 
It's about two thirds who stick with typically with the default if it's not something outrageous, mm. and that then obviously has has a big effect on whatever policy you're formulating. For example, the minimum that you put into super from the get go, right? But you can adjust up or down, but whatever policy, whatever default you're choosing to be uh, the one that you start with, people typically stick with, and mm. so. Uh, you have to carefully think about these sort of elements, and then there's other ones where it's where it's only going to make a difference for some people uh, of the population, only a small, small amount of the population. But if you can do that in a in a uh, libertarian, paternalistic way, without you know harming any one of the el- any of the others, but helping those few, then you may as well do so mm. in the process. Yeah. So I mean, Loki, you, you're saving us all, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has the topic of behavioral economics and its influence, particularly as the, the sort of keywords like nudging and so forth, have been hyped up probably slightly too much. Uh, and so people start being sort of uh, uh, rea- having an adverse reaction to anyone using nudging or mm. behavioral economics as being a you know, a really useful thing. But we never claimed or, you know, no one ever claimed that behavioral is going to make everything, you know, double or half, you know, if it's, you know, it's not, was never going to have a huge effect. Mm. Uh, but it has effects sometimes only on the margin and sometimes quite substantially, as we can see in lots of these, for example, saving for retirement plans that have been put in place on a behavioral uh, informed, psycho- psychologically fa- founded way uh, for people to save more money in the U.S., for example, has had huge outcomes on the aggregate savings in the U.S. So there is certainly areas where this is really, really fruitful, and there's no way to not do this because uh, any any policy advisor, any policy changes that don't involve behavioral are almost uh, doomed to fail. And then there's areas where just thinking about it might make a small change, uh, not a huge one. You could leave it. You could, you know, just do your typical economic approach and don't worry about behavioral and hardly anyone would notice but at the same time it probably has a small effect nevertheless Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on time versus productivity based work so the idea of here's a list I've got to do knock it off you're done for the day or here I'm at work for this amount of time well, the, the time is more the traditional one. It's easier to measure, right? Mm. So it's always, it's, I guess, for the employer, it's always the trade-off. Um, but since you are sitting in an office in front of a computer, um, unless you want to go into weird stalker-type you know, <laughs> approaches and control what they're actually doing on a computer, it doesn't mean that people are, even though they have to sit there those seven hours a day or whatever, that they're actually productive these all yeah. these hours. And so therefore, I tend to, and it's just personal, like I have... I've not, I'm not citing any research here, but uh, I, I think that, and it might differ f- from person to person, but I think overall uh, the time approach as being the only one relevant is, is not optimal. Mm. So either a mixed approach, uh, somehow a combination of some present time, which is also good for meetings if you have sort of a core time maybe or something, and then also some more flexible time that people can work whenever they feel most productive if they get the work done, which is really what at the end counts, it doesn't count that you sit seven hours in front of the computer in that office. No one cares about that in the end, not even the employer. It's all going to be coming down to the outcome, to to the product that you're producing. And so therefore, if you can make it work without that artificial time constraint thing, then then you get rid of a lot of inefficiencies in that Mm. relationship. 
uh, between the employer and the employee. Uh, yeah. 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 I feel like the, especially coming out of COVID and, and we well, still dealing with COVID, but like mm-hmm. the, you know, when we're in the thick of it and everyone was working from home, it did seem like a lot of people I knew kind of were getting more work done, but with, because they were at home, there wasn't that, I guess, pressure of like, are you, are you working to, you know, 5 p.m. or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people that were kind of like getting a lot of their work done in kind of three hours and then just having the rest of the day to, to live and be human. Um, and it just, yeah, it was a bit of an opener of like, why aren't all these companies just doing this all the time? Yeah, so there's, there, I guess, it's a short-term versus long-term thing. So this might work short-term. Mm. Uh, you already know all your colleagues. You can communicate with them blindly uh, or over Zoom or phone or email. Uh, but all these uh, all these relations, which are potentially key to your productivity, had been established at a time where we didn't have these relations. So mm. you have to see it a bit more long-term in, uh, in order to get these co-worker relations which are necessary and key to be established we probably need some office yeah. time some shared office time including sort of what looks like non-productive chatting time and all yeah. those sort of things right so um yeah and so this might work short term but it might not be the equilibrium that works long term i think a bit more mixed uh, approach but uh, it is Eye-opening if if some people found that they can you know get their seven work seven hour working day with plus travel time yeah. done in like three or four hours and can be much more productive mm. and, and then that is something that the uh, the employer should focus and and harness if they want right they can incentivize you know get their get their worker do something in between work mm. for 6 hours but more productive if they manage and if they are more productive at home well then it's a really good argument to establish something on that basis and if it's only for a couple of days a week mm. right you can uh, it doesn't have to be a one or the other it is really innovative not least would we save so much office space uh, and concrete and yep. carbon emissions and yep. and all kinds of things uh, in terms of uh, parking spots space there's so much that could be improved if there is even a small shift towards not always being present in a particular room, no matter what, and having to be productive on the spot, uh, but having a bit more flexibility. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that mixed approach because definitely thinking short term and like productivity, get it done in three hours. But there is something about that office environment and, and that social aspect of it that's obviously really important to what a lot of us do and. Yeah, I think it's it's personally, especially, it's easy to forget that side of it and just be like, productive, get it done, move on. It feels good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Thank you. I mean, we covered a lot. Thank you um, very much. Yeah, fun. thank you so much for coming and spending your time and, and sharing your knowledge. It was fun being here. I really, really appreciate it. I'm really enjoying it. I appreciate it. Thank it's you great so much. To you for it. All right, much love.